It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Insurrection is a broad Uh, broad term. And if there's some debate about it, I suppose that will go into the uh, decision. And then eventually what we would be deciding, uh, whether uh, it was an insurrection when one president did something as opposed to when somebody else did something else. And what do we do? Do we wait until near the time of uh, uh, counting the ballots and sort of go through which states uh, are valid and which states aren't? Chief Justice John Roberts expressed the concern that seemed to underlie the oral arguments over Colorado kicking Donald Trump off the ballot for engaging in an insurrection. The Supreme Court doesn't want to be in the business of deciding every challenge over ballot access of presidential candidates with the consequent political ramifications. There seemed to be little doubt that the court will vote to keep Trump on the ballot, as both liberal and conservative justices questioned whether a state can enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, a provision barring those who engaged in insurrection from holding office. Here's Justice Elena Kagan. I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it. It sounds awfully national. As for the question of whether Trump had engaged in an insurrection, in two hours of oral arguments, only one justice, Katanji Brown-Jackson, asked that question of Trump's attorney, Jonathan Mitchell. For an insurrection, there needs to be an organized, concerted effort to overthrow the government of the United States through violence. And this and So riot the point that is that a chaotic effort to overthrow the government is not an insurrection? No, we didn't concede that it's an effort to overthrow the government either, Justice Jackson. My guest is election law expert Derek Muller, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Broad question first. Does it appear that the justices are going to rule that Colorado can't disqualify Trump from the ballot perhaps even unanimously? Yeah, I think it's going to be a unanimous or near-unanimous decision reversing the Colorado Supreme Court here. The justices across the ideological spectrum seem concerned about the notion that one state could have such an outsized influence in a presidential election to have such an influence on the rest of the process and to do so without any guidance from Congress. Uh, the presidency's a unique office. It's not just an office out of one state, but an office that comes from the choices of many states making the decision. And I think the notion that the Supreme Court would be expected to clean up those messes if different states reach different resolutions 
elections or that every time there was a challenge, it would end up at the Supreme Court's door was certainly unattractive to them. So I think there's a lot of consensus that Trump's name will appear on the ballot. Let's discuss some of the arguments that Trump raised. He'd argue that the president isn't covered by the insurrection clause because the president is not an officer of the United States as defined in that clause. And there was a lot of discussion of what is an officer, does a president qualify, and Justice Neil Gorsuch basically gave a history lesson at one point on the term officer versus office. Yeah, I mean, I think Justice Gorsuch was worried about some of what might describe as pedantic originalism, (laughs) worried about parsing these terms with such fine precision. Now, that said, Justice Jackson spent a significant amount of time at argument suggests that the history at the time shows that the Reconstruction Congress was really worried about state offices and about state factions of ex-Confederates gathering together and retaking parts of the government. And if that's the case, the fact that the word president is not listed among those offices suggests that the framers were not terribly worried about the presidency at all. And if that's the case, the inference should be the presidency was just not of their concern and therefore not one of those offices covered. So while she spoke up about that proposition, it's not clear how many other justices would agree with her. What about kicking this over to Congress and saying that Congress has to enforce Section 3? Yeah, there were versions of the congressional enforcement question that came up. You know, Justice Kavanaugh seemed to lean most strongly into an 1869 decision called Griffin's case, which involved then Chief Justice Chase, who was riding circuit at the lower court, issuing a decision effectively saying Congress needs to do this and nobody else can do this without congressional involvement. It's not clear there was a lot of support for that. Justice Sotomayor in particular pushed back on that argument. But there was broad consensus on a different dimension. I mean, several justices expressed concern that one state could enforce this in a presidential election without some kind of federal guidance or federal oversight. That's not necessarily clear what that would look like, but I think the concern that states could go about this on their own in a presidential election to keep a candidate off and, again, have an effective exclusion that could carry over to other states was problematic and a reason why the uniquely national office, the presidency, required perhaps unique congressional legislation to implement it in such a case. Justice Kavanaugh gave what I'll call a little speech about democracy and the importance of not disenfranchising voters. Do you think that underlies all this and it's really more a political consideration that the court doesn't want to be the one to say, no, this person can't be on the ballot? Yeah, I mean, there are some gradations of this to think about. There's one level, which is in the case of ambiguity or uncertainty, how confident do we have to be about this result before we're going to exclude somebody? Justice Gorsuch and some others, yeah, did question a little bit more broadly about the consequences of this decision. And I think the consequences could be viewed in those terms of the people making a decision, the people voting, but also in terms of very real concerns about the court's involvement in the case. And while it wasn't as overt in these terms, I think there is a concern from the court that if it's asked on a regular basis to adjudicate the qualifications and candidacies of presidential candidates, it puts itself in a very difficult spot, and it finds itself the arbiter of decisions that we typically think are left to the political process. So there was an undercurrent of allowing the political process to play out, but I think part of that was more skepticism that these states had done the right thing or that the Supreme Court was the right place to do it, rather than maybe just some affirmation that states should be able to do what they want. Do you think there's a fear, sort of like echoes of Bush v. Gore, we don't want to be in that position? 
Yeah, I think there are echoes of that. I think, to be sure, I think the court since Bush versus Gore is certainly acutely aware of the consequences of being involved in decisions like this. Now, Colorado Supreme Court's decision puts the United States Supreme Court in a difficult place, right? If it acts or if it doesn't act, it finds itself, you know, on one side of a political question or another. So that's why I think I was somewhat heartened to see the Supreme Court justices coalescing around arguments with one another and and supporting a sort of singular output. So I think there's going to be a lot of effort to coalesce around a clear decision from the court, a per curiam, ideally unanimous decision that resolves the issue, at least for presidential candidates or, or some set of federal candidates, and moves on to say that the political process needs to resolve it. And that might be unsatisfying to some, but I think at the top level, I think the court is aware that it doesn't want to be viewed as overtly partisan, and whatever it can do to mitigate that, it will definitely try to do. So do you have any idea what path they'll choose to get there? Yeah, I think the goal will probably be something along the lines of this notion that the presidency is a unique national office. The court has its precedents saying that states have less of an interest in patrolling the ballot for those kinds of candidacies because it is a unique national office that there are concerns about how states administer this inconsistently, or that if there's one state that moves first, how does that affect other states? And those practical consequences are are significant enough to suggest that Congress needs to be the one to provide guidance and rules in this context, at least when it comes to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So it will be, I think, something that is a little bit more election law heavy than Section 3 heavy, but something that reflects these concerns that presidential elections are unique and require some kind of federal guidance before they can be regulated in the way that Colorado tried to do here. There was only one question about what's at the heart of this Colorado case. Did Donald Trump engage in an insurrection? And after an hour, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson posed that question, and then it sort of disappeared, never, never more to be heard. Yes, I think there was very little appetite on the court to be talking about engaging in insurrection about the First Amendment issues. There was almost no discussion about those topics. There was some brief discussions about what insurrection was. Trump's attorney did mention that, you know, it was heinous acts, criminal acts committed that day. So some condemnation there. And so the court did avoid some of those really thorny, in the weeds, fact intensive or disputed questions focusing instead on a a variety of other topics that they could coalesce around. And so while it might have surprised people that they didn't get a lot more attention, it was not terribly surprising to me. I think that was the issue that they wanted to avoid the most of all, messy facts with deep political consequences. If they can decide on pure law, all the better for them. There was sort of a warning from the attorney for the Colorado voters. He said if Colorado loses this case, the issue could come back with a vengeance if Trump is elected president and then members of Congress have to decide whether to let him take office. Do you think the Supreme Court is going to leave that question open? It seems like they might. You know, the question of whether or not Congress on January 6th, 2025 will count electoral votes or try to object to them and refuse to count them is certainly an open one. And then there's the separate question about what happens after Trump takes office. Will there be lawsuits to challenge his official actions? And if so, what do those challenges look like? So if the court moves in the direction that we anticipate it's moving, it seems that it's more a ballot access issue and less an issue of disqualification under Section 3. But it does leave the door open for another day to resolve these questions. After this argument and how the justices seem to be fleeing for the exits, in my opinion, (laughs) do you think that 
when Trump makes a request for certiorari from the D.C. Circuit Court decision rejecting his claims of presidential immunity, do you think that they'll refuse to take that case or there'll be four hardy souls who want to address that issue? Yeah, I don't know. You know, if if I'm thinking what the court might do here, and maybe I'm wrong, but you issue a decision in a couple of weeks on this case saying Trump can appear on the ballot, and the same day you deny certiorari in the immunity case and essentially say the D.C. Circuit opinion stands and he can be subject to criminal prosecution. So in both cases, the court would be letting the political and legal process play out without needing to step in. Now, I don't know if they're going to do that. There might be some interest in addressing the immunity issues at some level from some justices in the court, but that is kind of a wait-and-see approach. We don't quite know how these two cases might relate to one another, but they definitely seem to be linked to some degree. At least we won't have too long to wait and see what the Supreme Court does with this. Thanks so much for the conversation, Derek. That's Professor Derek Muller of Notre Dame Law School. Coming up, one apparent victory, one defeat. We'll take a look at why Trump lost his presidential immunity arguments at the D.C. Appellate Court. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. When they talk about uh, threat to democracy, that's your real threat to democracy. And I feel that as a president, you have to have immunity. Very simple. And if you don't, as an example, if uh, this case were lost on immunity and I did nothing wrong, absolutely nothing wrong, I'm working for the country. But the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals definitively rejected former President Donald Trump's claims that the office of the presidency shields him from criminal prosecution. In a unanimous ruling, the three-judge panel found that, quote, For the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become Citizen Trump, moving him one step closer to standing trial for trying to overturn the 2020 election. The judges made their skepticism of Trump's immunity claims clear during the oral arguments last month. Here's Judge Karen LaCraft Henderson. I think it's paradoxical to say that his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed allows him to violate criminal laws. And in their opinion, the judges repeatedly used Trump's former words and positions against him. For example, pointing out that during his impeachment, Trump had argued that he could still be criminally charged, something Judge Florence Pan brought out during the oral arguments. You took the position, or your client did, during the impeachment proceedings, that there would be an option for criminal prosecution later, and it's in the congressional record. And I guess the question is, what has changed or why have you changed your position? The court put the ruling on hold so that Trump can appeal to the Supreme Court, but they gave him a tight deadline, only giving him until Monday to file the appeal. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jessica Roth, a professor at Cardozo Law School. The court said our analysis is guided by the Constitution, federal statutes, and history, as well as concerns of public policy. What's your impression broadly of the opinion? 
My opinion is that it is a resounding rejection of Trump's claim of immunity from criminal prosecution and that it's an extremely thorough, well-written and well-reasoned opinion that is unanimous, issued on behalf of a panel that included one judge appointed by a Republican president, all speaking in one calm but clear voice, holding that a former president is not above the law. They address all of Trump's arguments for immunity and shoot them down one by one, starting with his argument that separation of powers immunizes him. The court took that argument seriously and addressed it thoroughly, but found that there was no problem in separation of powers concerns with uh, a former president being held criminally responsible for actions taken while in office that were in violation of federal criminal laws passed by the United States Congress. And it cited precedents in which presidential actions had been subject to judicial review, including former President Truman's seizure of the steel mills. And the court said it did not find that separation of powers concerns prevented the court from exercising oversight through the adjudication of the criminal laws over acts committed by a former president while in office that, in fact, were violations of criminal law. As you mentioned, there was a measured tone, but I thought that the tone was a little less measured when they had concerns about, quote, at bottom, former President Trump's stance would collapse our system of separated powers by placing the president beyond the reach of all three branches. At different points, I just thought that they raised some heightened concerns. They certainly raised concerns, and there were a number of really striking portions of the opinion that in a sense, in a very measured way, I thought expressed a sense of outrage over the implications of the former president's argument. So you just read one portion of it. There's another portion where the court said it would be a striking paradox if the president, who alone is vested with the constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, were the sole officer capable of defying those laws with impunity. So there are a number of statements like that that are just really strong rejections of the notion that a former president would be immune from prosecution and from his actions being reviewed by the court. They also took on policy considerations that he'd raised. Trump's lawyer had said, and Trump himself has said this, that if presidents didn't have immunity, it would risk chilling their actions and that presidents would be routinely indicted after they left office. Yes, the court did take into account those policy considerations and said that not only was there no historical precedent for immunity from criminal prosecution of the kind that former President Trump sought, but that these policy considerations did not weigh in favor of recognizing such immunity for the first time in this case. They said that it has always been understood that former presidents could be subject to criminal prosecution when they left office. For example, that's why former President Ford pardoned former President Nixon. They cited the example of former President Bill Clinton, who entered into an agreement with the special counsel who had been investigating him with various sanctions, including forfeiting his law license, in part to settle the prospect of a future criminal prosecution. And then most importantly, they cited statements by attorneys for former President Trump during his impeachment trial, his second impeachment trial, where they argued that impeachment was not the proper remedy, but rather 
the possibility of a criminal prosecution would be the proper remedy. And so they said there are these examples that point toward an understanding that former presidents could be subject to criminal prosecution when they left office for acts taken while president, and that there was no suggestion in the historical record that that prospect had chilled presidents while they were in office from exercising their duties without too much concern. And in fact, there was a quote from the district court opinion that I just thought was very telling. The district court had said, every president will face difficult decisions, whether to intentionally commit a federal crime should not be one of them. And the D.C. Circuit quoted that language saying basically they don't think that they're holding that there is no immunity from criminal prosecution is going to actually chill presidents in the exercise of their duties. During the oral arguments, Trump's lawyer spent, it seemed like most of the time, on the impeachment clause and this argument that Donald Trump would first have to have been convicted by the Senate in order to then be tried criminally after he left office. And they took that on, and they said the strongest evidence against Trump's claim of immunity is found in the words of the Constitution's impeachment clause. They did treat thoroughly this argument that he could not be prosecuted criminally because he had not been convicted in the Senate relying on the impeachment clause. They addressed it thoroughly and said that they rejected it, uh, that they thought it was a strained reading of the clause that he offered, and that although the clause makes clear that a president can be criminally prosecuted after being impeached and convicted, that the negative implication that Trump was arguing from that clause, that he could only be criminally prosecuted if he had been convicted in the Senate following impeachment, simply did not follow. So in the opinion, you had the legal arguments based on precedent and history and the Constitution. And then there were the sort of logical, sensible arguments. And one here was that, you know, the founders knew how to grant immunity if they wanted to, and they didn't want to here. Yes, absolutely. They cited to other portions of the Constitution that were explicit about granting immunity, for example, with respect to the speech and debate clause and making clear that there would be immunity there for actions in the course of speech and debate by members of Congress. And so if the framers knew how to be explicit about grants of immunity, it follows that if they didn't explicitly grant it to presidents in this context, that it doesn't exist. The court put the ruling on hold so that Trump could appeal to the Supreme Court, but they put him on a really tight deadline, giving him only six days to do that. Do you think they were looking at his strategy of delay, delay, delay? I can't speak to what was in the judges' minds in their decision about the timing here. It is notable that they gave him a short time frame in which to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court before they would issue the mandate. I think it speaks to the urgency of the matters involved in this case. When you see that sense of the significance of this case throughout the court's opinion, when it talks about how the alleged conduct was an effort to overturn the results of a democratic election and the public's interest in the enforcement of criminal laws. So I think that those substantive aspects of the case may carry over to the court's sense of what is an appropriate time frame in which to allow resort to further appellate review before the case goes forward in the district court. No one knows whether the Supreme Court will take the case or not, but they already have a couple of Trump cases 
on the docket, including this case over Colorado barring him from the ballot. What would be your guess as to whether they'll take the case or not? This is such a well-reasoned and thoughtful opinion that I think there are very compelling reasons why the court wouldn't take this case up. There's no circuit split on this issue, and they certainly have their plateful with other really important cases that they need to decide, including the ballot access question. On the other hand, this is an enormously significant issue, whether a former president is entitled to immunity from criminal prosecution. One could imagine the justices saying this is an issue on which we should opine. But on the other hand, unless there are enough justices who think that the D.C. Circuit opinion is wrong, then I could also see them letting the D.C. opinion be the final word on this subject. So timing is everything here because the federal election case was on for March 4th, but then the judge had to take it off the calendar because of this appeal on the immunity issue. If the Supreme Court decides not to take the case, how fast could the trial be put back on the calendar and move forward? Well, the trial court has indicated that she will give the former president additional time to respond to motions that were filed by the special counsel uh, to file any additional motions on his own behalf, time that, you know, but for the stay of the trial court proceedings, he would have had to work on these motions in this last month or so. So she's going to give him that time. That means we're probably looking at some time at the earliest in late summer, perhaps late July, early August for a trial date. But we really don't know what's going to happen. I mean, if the U.S. Supreme Court were to take the case and grant a stay, that would mean that things would remain frozen. We really don't know. But we do see coming from the trial court in D.C., Judge Chutkin, every effort to move the case along as expeditiously as possible. So I think we may have a better sense by next week, by Monday, uh, when and if Trump files an application in the U.S. Supreme Court for a stay, whether that's going to happen. I expect it will. And then I would imagine within a week or so after that, perhaps we would have some indication from the U.S. Supreme Court about how quickly they're going to move. And if they're not going to take the case at all, then things may start proceeding even more quickly in the trial court. I think everyone is anticipating that Trump will file in the Supreme Court, but we'll know definitively on Monday. Thanks so much, Jessica. That's Professor Jessica Roth of Cardozo Law School. Coming up next, the landmark conviction of a Michigan mother for murders committed by her son. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Jennifer Crumbly found guilty of four counts of involuntary manslaughter, one for each of the students her teenage son murdered in a shooting rampage at a Michigan high school in 2021. A historic verdict. The first parent ever held criminally responsible for a school shooting carried out by her child. Jennifer Crumbly didn't pull the trigger at but she is responsible for those deaths. 
Prosecutors Mark Keast and Karen McDonald argued that Crumbly was responsible because she and her husband ignored her son Ethan's mental health struggles, bought him the handgun used in the shootings, and disregarded the concerns of school counselors about his behavior just hours before the attacks. She walked out of that school when just the smallest, smallest of things could have saved, could have helped Hannah and Tate, and Madison, and Justin. Crumbly took the stand in her own defense and testified that she didn't see herself as a failure as a parent. I trusted him, and I felt like I had an open door and he can come to me about anything. I mean, I felt, I felt as a family, we were, we were, the three of us were really close. Of course, I look back after this all happened, and um, I've asked myself if I would have done anything differently, and I wouldn't have. And the cross-examination seemed to reinforce the prosecution's case. When your son texted you that he was seeing demons and bowls flying off the shelves, that was in the spring of 2021. You recall that evidence, right? Correct. You don't dispute that that was on your phone? No. You don't dispute that at some point you read those messages? No. After 11 hours of deliberations, the jury found Crumbly guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Craig Schilling, whose 17-year-old son Justin was killed in the shooting, said Crumbly would not be sitting in prison if she had done her job as a parent. It is your choice to have a child, and you cannot choose to not take care of your child. You cannot choose to not nurture your child. You cannot choose to um, take your own interest over your child especially when it comes to mental health. Joining me is Echo Yanka, a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. In a real sense, was it Jennifer Crumbly's parenting that was on trial here? I think the prosecution painted a picture of her as an indifferent, callous parent, one who is more interested in her horses and hobbies, her extramarital affairs, than getting her child the help that he explicitly seemed to be seeking. But, of course, the prosecution knew that being a bad parent is not by itself illegal. And having that be the only line of argument would be not just legally insufficient, but probably unpalatable. And so they really made a point that it's not just that she was a bad parent. It's that she had opportunity after opportunity to do something to avoid these killings. And that even given a million little moments where she could have saved those lives, she did nothing. The prosecution had so much evidence against Crumbly, from her son's text that she didn't answer, to journal entries, to videos of her at the shooting range with her son. What was the best evidence in your mind? I think you put your finger exactly on it, that as the prosecution tried to hammer home, it just seems like there were a million moments where she could have done something, given him the help he needs. There's a moment, for example, when he is caught searching online about ammunition, and she texts back, you know, I don't care if you do this, just don't get caught, you know, LOL. But if you ask me the single moment, the single moment that was the most powerful when I talk to friends, when I debate with legal colleagues, and frankly, just around the dinner table, I would say the fact that the school called her in that very day when Ethan is drawing pictures of violence and death, and they asked the Crumleys to take Ethan home. And Depending on who you believe, they either refuse or together they decide not to do it. 
But in any case, they walk out of there knowing he had a weapon. The foreperson told NBC that she was swayed by the belief that Crumley was the last person who had custody of the gun and that, therefore, she was responsible for it. And I'm wondering if that is faulty reasoning. I mean, can you really draw a conclusion of guilt from the last information that the prosecution has? So I feel torn about that. I'll say why. On the one hand, clearly part of the background of the case, part of the overall theory of her involuntary manslaughter rests on her negligence. And that rests on the idea that an ordinary person would have known that Ethan was going to do this. An ordinary person should have seen that this danger existed. And so the fact that the parents knew that there was a weapon, that the parents didn't tell the school, that the parents could have, for example, locked up the gun. All those things are in the mix. But I do worry about a jury foreman. You know, if I were a defense lawyer on appeal, you might think such reasoning assumes evidence not in fact, and it's not clear that it is the legally relevant standard. So I think I understand the the feeling behind it, but if that sentence is literally true, you know, it's going to give the defense something to hold on. Crumbly took the stand in her own defense, as you know. Often when that happens, the whole focus of the jury is on the credibility of the defendant. And she didn't come across well on the stand. Listen to what the jury foreperson told NBC. At the time, I tried to take her as she gave herself. Um, But once we went into deliberation, it became clear um, that she wasn't a super reliable witness in this case. Look, her testimony was not great. I thought the worst moment was when she was asked what she would do differently today. And her answer was nothing, right? I understand the impulse. Her answer is, I just didn't do anything wrong. But when you're staring at, you know, a day where four children were killed and seven more were injured, that answer just feels callous. So I definitely worried about that. That being said, look, the defense had a great legal principle on which they were relying, but they had a really tough task because the prosecution had really tainted her. Is callous bordering on monstrous. And I think the defense felt a lot of pressure to humanize her. The only image that the jurors had in their minds was of a parent who just didn't care about her son and her son's danger to others. And so I understand why they felt strategically like they had to do something to claw back an image of a human mother who was doing her best. You said the defense had a good theory. Tell me what the theory is. Well, the defense, I think, had two prongs. The second we just talked about, that look, I mean, there's a kind of human instinct. This is a mother doing her best. And moreover, you're saying a reasonable person could have foreseen this. You're asking a mother to foresee something that mothers might think is bordering on unthinkable. You're asking a mom to foresee that her son will be monstrous, will be a mass shooter. And so that has a kind of, I wouldn't say it's the very point of the legal theory, but it has a kind of diffuse tug on a juror's heart that surely requiring a mother to see that is a strain. But the core of the defense theory really is the first year legal principle, the one that you learn when you're starting law school, that you are just not responsible for the actions of another. That when somebody who's a responsible agent acts, it severs the causal chain. And I think the defense really thought at the end of the day that not only as a legal matter, but as a social and moral matter, that has a lot of weight in people's minds. Do you think that this case provides a blueprint to other prosecutors and will see more parents being charged for the criminal acts of their children? Yeah, this is a question I've been asked a lot, and I, I, you know, I struggle to answer it well. 
On the one hand, as we've discussed, this case had such egregious facts, such heartrending facts, where moment after moment, things were going wrong. And to be honest, perhaps it's just an extraordinary case with extraordinary facts. You know, as lawyers say, the kind of case that should be confined to its facts. On the other hand, you know, the life of the law is precedent. Lawyers argue by analogy, and prosecutors certainly do too. And once a prosecutor has this precedent in the world, it's impossible to imagine they won't use it. And further, as I've said before, and I think it's really important, prosecutors can use these things in ways that are much less spectacular and visible than a Crumley case, right? So in the Crumley case, the whole nation, indeed, the whole world's interested because the facts are so visceral. But we won't see the case where the prosecutor has a parent who thinks they have a legal defense and says, look, I'm going to offer you three years, but if you don't accept this plea bargain, I'm going to prosecute you for 15 or 20. And if that person pleads out, they may be giving up on their legal defenses. They may serve many years in jail, and it will be quite invisible. It will be quite under the radar, and I worry about those cases. As far as appellate issues, you mentioned one. Do you see any you know, obvious appellate issues? There are going to be some, right? I mean, I do think the foreman of the jury speaking, you know, there's a reason juries deliberate in secret. That statement that she thought Jennifer Crumley was last to handle the gun might be worrying. There are always going to be issues on which the judge ruled, in particular some of the evidence the judge let in, some of the really, really gut-wrenching photographic evidence. Surely some part of the appeal will be that that evidence was more prejudicial than probative. You know, the argument will be something like everybody knows that Ethan committed this horrible act. There was no need to see the result of it, right? There was no real addition by seeing the pictures. It just emotionally affected the jurors. But I think ultimately, the thing on which you appeal is the legal principle. I mean, if this goes all the way up to the Michigan Supreme Court, asking the Supreme Court to reinforce the legal norm that one just can't be responsible for another person's act. You know, the the hypothetical would be parents who are doing their best, but are afraid that their children are tempted to violence. At some point, they get to say, I've done what I can. His actions are his now. The father's trial is coming up. Will he learn from what happened here? Can he use different strategies, you know, change things up for his trial, or maybe even try to plead out? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, my mind is spinning about that, too. Obviously, the parents are the ones in the most pain, and Jennifer Crumley was convicted. But other than those people, nobody had a worse day than James Crumley, right? Now, I would say every case is different. You know, this case was supposed to be tried together until really almost the last minute where they decided to separate the cases. And presumably that's because each of them thinks that, or at least one of them thought that there were more damning facts towards the other, right? So you saw Jennifer argue that it was the father, James, who bought the gun, and he's the one in charge of locking it up. And presumably his team will have arguments about why she's more culpable. And most importantly, every jury's different, right? But it seems to me the most obvious thing that will happen, given a conviction, is that his team will move for a change of venue. They'll just think this poisons the... It was already such an emotional and difficult case, so visible, that the conviction is just too poisonous for them. And then a part of me really does wonder if at this late hour, if they really would reach out for a plea bargain, and if, frankly, the prosecution would think there's anything to be gained after they've already done all the work to take the case to trial once. Thanks so much for sharing your insights. That's Echo Yanka, a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Jennifer Crombley will be sentenced on April 9th. She faces a maximum 15 years in prison.
Ethan Crumbly is already serving a life sentence after pleading guilty in the case. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing and listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.